Magia is my absolute favorite non-alcoholic social tonic. Inspired by Mediterranean aperitivo culture, it literally tastes like summer in a glass and is a super sophisticated and refreshing alternative to sugary mocktails and sodas. Okay, how to describe the flavor to you? Gia is bitter without being sour. It's citrusy without being sweet. It also has top notes of florals and herbs like rosemary and lemon balm, but nothing too overpowering. And it has just the right amount of heat to give it a grown up kick. I like my gear paired with tonic, and my fridge is always stocked with the Le Spritz single serve cans, which are available in two flavors Gear Soda and Gear Ginger for something with a little more bite. Best of all, apart from the fact that it contains 0.0% alcohol, of course, is that all Gear products contain no added sugar, no synthetic ingredients, and no other nasties. If you're new to Gear, you can get their first sip kit which has all the things you need to get the full gear experience at drinkgear.com. That's drinkgia.com. You can also get a full list of retail outlets on the website, including restaurants and bars that stock gear, or get 10% off your first online order with the code CURIOUS. Hello, this is the Sober Curious podcast, and my guest this week is Swan Huntley, an author and illustrator whose latest novel is titled Getting Clean with Stevie Green. The novel tells the story of a wannabe decluttering guru, Stevie, who is both getting sober and coming to terms with her sexuality. The decluttering part is a metaphor, really, for the process of accepting our lives in all their messy glory, something that I think we can all agree is part and parcel of removing the rosé-tinted spectacles and getting sober curious. I feel like we often pick up drink, drugs, and whatever else to try to make life look better on the outside than it feels on the inside. But if you're here, I think you will probably have discovered that this approach often just creates more mess. And as Stevie learns in the book, confronting reality as it is is really the only way to live the lives that we are here to live. This is all stuff that we get into in this episode, along with the book's other themes of escapism, perfectionism, denial, and letting go. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Swan Huntley. Swan, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I would love just to kick off so that to sort of introduce you to listeners and kind of like set up why you're here on the Sober Curious podcast. Um, If you could share with us your sober story, whatever you want to share today and whatever feels relevant, given that we're going to be talking about Stevie's sober story too. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me on the podcast and I would love to share my sober story. Uh, It is similar to Stevie's. I, unlike my first two novels, really mind my own life in writing this novel. Um, and I, let's see, I've been sober for 11 years. I got sober, uh, about two weeks after I turned 28. So like Saturn returns age. And I started drinking at 13 and I was actually just doing my, this math in my head. Um, so I, I was drinking and doing drugs for 15 years and then, and now I'm 39. So the end of that story, I have so many more years sober now than I do drunk, which is kind of cool. You do. I mean, there's the childhood, which was sober. Yeah. For most people, it's sober. It's interesting you say 13, 12, 13. It seems like I started drinking around 15 and then had a big break until kind of early 20s. And people who I have interviewed on this podcast who have perhaps, perhaps it's got a little bit more to the kind of more extreme end of the drinking spectrum. Typically the younger people start, the more entrenched the habit becomes. Is that a, is some, that something you've thought about or kind of like come across in your journeys and traverses throughout the sort of sober space? You know what? I've never really thought about that. I thought you were just going to say something about how 13, 12, 13 is like a really popular age to start drinking. That's when things tend to go south for a lot of people, but it's mm. true that a that for many people, things go south later. Um, and of course, when you're that young, that's such a formative time um, that it does make sense to me that it's it, it, it's harder to change patterns. 
Yeah, it's almost like the the earlier the brain starts, the brain changes start happening, the more kind of the more unwinding there will be to do, or the more kind of rerouting and and changing, sort of moving beyond it that will need to be done at the other end. Potentially, I don't know. It's just kind of a theory. So when you said the age thirteen, and I should also specify that break, I was smoking heavy, heavy weed every day. So, <laughs> and I had an eating disorder. So it's not like I was kind of you know out of the woods <laughs> from 16 to 22. Anyway, um, so I, I, your publicist did share a little bit about the specifics of you quitting. And I'd love if you could share a bit about what kind of led up to you actually deciding to put it down. How, was, how, how had your drinking developed over that sort of like 15-year period? And what led to you actually finally saying no more? Yeah, uh... I'll address the last part first. My drinking developed as it does for many people. It got more intense. I became more isolated. I started to feel increasingly dead inside, but I had, you know, what we call in the 12 step world, a high bottom, which means things looked good on the outside for me. Like when I got sober, I was going to grad school. I had a cute apartment in New York. Um, people were actually like, wow, you seem to be doing really well. I had started exercising. I was kind of looking into Buddhism or like what other spiritual things to fill me up. Um, so it looked, it looked nice, but I had this whole secret life. I mean, it was very Jekyll and Hyde, like to the point that I had a whole routine that I would do myself when I was drinking. It was, uh, two bottles of wine and a six pack of like a beer, but not like Coors Light, like the, like IPA with the largest percentage beer. And then sometimes more than the six pack, I was like consistently going to the bodega around the corner at like two, 3 AM. But, um, I would be alone in my apartment in New York drinking that I would go for a long run. Then I would drink all that. And, and also smoke like two to three packs of cigarettes. I mean, just like chain smoking And I would write. And then when writing didn't make sense anymore, when it was just like incoherent, I would start painting. I'm not really a painter. I just thought it was fun. And I can remember one morning waking up and everything, my apartment was like totally clean, pristine. And on the wall, there was a new painting. It was like my drunk self had like created a new painting and cleaned up for my sober self. I woke up and I was like, I am two people. This is terrifying. The other thing I remember about living in that apartment and about that period, which is like the period right before I got sober is I would leave every morning to go to grad school. And there was this mirror in the entryway. And as I would leave and I, I just remember like looking over and being like, God, I look like I really have it together. That's also terrifying because I just feel so empty inside. Mm -hmm. Um, A couple of things happened that, resulted in me finally getting sober. I would say the first thing is the book Drinking a Love Story by Carolyn Knapp. I don't know if you ever read that, but I haven't read it, but I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. It was popular a long time ago. Like I think in the nineties and uh, I randomly had found this book um, like three or four years before getting sober when I was living in Boston, working at a bar and like drinking a lot. And I just picked it up. I was always obsessed with addiction stories. I watched every episode of that show intervention. Like I never thought about why now I totally know why it just made me feel better about myself. You know, I was like, I'm good. And that's basically what this book did for me. Like Carolyn Knapp was putting scotch in her bag and I was like, Oh, I'm good. And I remember saying to my friends at the time, like, we're not drinking too much. Like we're fine. You should just read this book. And then, um, you know, when I was waking up to the painting on the wall and like walking out of the apartment, checking myself in the mirror and just feeling so empty, I reread that book. Um, I also had a conversation with my therapist and, uh, and we ended up talking about like drinking the whole time. I thought we were going to talk about this crappy person I was dating who was like a really heavy drinker, of course. But we talked about my drinking the whole time and I went home and I reread that book and I was like, oh my God, I am her. Like I'm exactly her. And it was only three or four years. So that scared me. I was like, I see exactly where this is going to end up. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she had gotten sober a little later than I did. I want to say it was like 31, 32. I can't remember. Uh, mm-hmm. Flash forward. She died of at like 50 of lung cancer, which I just quit smoking. So I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, after I read that, I was like, I basically tried to quit drinking and realized that I couldn't do it is the short version of what happened. Um, the longer version includes a scene uh, with me jogging at like six o'clock in the morning with my brother, who I was really close to at the time. We had flown back to San Diego for Thanksgiving and um, we were both living in New York at the time. And I would do stuff like, I'd be like, uh, here, I'm going to buy me two bottles of wine and you two bottles of wine. Bye. Have a good night. Like that was like the kind of older sister that I was at that time. Um, and we were jogging and I was still drunk from the night before we had just gotten stoned at like six o'clock in the morning. And I just had this moment where I like looked at this beautiful sky. And I always say, I don't know if it was God or the weed, but I was just like, Oh my God, drinking is my problem. It just like hit me. And, you know, I had maybe had other windows like that, but I had never paused long enough to, to open the window, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, to do that metaphor. And I think maybe it was the weed that allowed me to be like, Oh, I'm going to stop here. So I literally stopped my brother and I was like, Fletcher, do you think I have a drinking problem? I fully expected him to be like, no way, dude, you're good. Like, it's all fine. I was just like waiting for those words to come out of his mouth, had already like heard them. That's how sure I was that he was going to say them. And he goes, maybe. And I was like, what? You traitor. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That after that, I, you were supposed to be my drinking buddy. Exactly. Um, so then after that, I was like, okay, I'm going to stop. And then like, I ended up, you know, hiding behind that house, like drinking this huge glass of red wine. And I was like, whoa, I can't stop. Like I'm not stopping. I've tried to stop and now I'm not stopping. That's crazy. So I ended up just Googling AA, which now seems insane to me. And after I went to my first meeting, I then went to my favorite beach in Hawaii and got wasted. Uh, It was like my goodbye drunk. And I haven't had a drink since then, which I now can't believe. Like in the beginning, sorry, I know I'm talking for a long time. I'll I'll stop in a second. But like in the beginning, everyone in AA was like, this is a miracle. And I was like, this does not feel like a miracle. Like this is like a crappy room with bad chairs and like the smell of burnt coffee. And now I'm really like, oh, I can't believe I stopped drinking. Like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And don't ever apologize for telling your story. Like this is, it's so interesting. It's so interesting for people who are wherever they're at on this. I kind of like to say, and I don't know if you'll agree with me on this. I kind of feel like regardless of how someone gets sober, everyone begins sober curious. We can go into the whole kind of subject around denial because that's a big theme in Stevie Green. Um, But I do think that you were, I mean, what you've described to me is you were getting sober curious. You were starting to ask the questions internally, first of all, is this healthy? Is this too much? Am I okay? Why does everyone think I'm okay when I know I'm not okay? You then finally vocalize a question to your brother. You get an answer. So you're in that questioning process of curiosity around your drinking before you actually find your way to AA. And so, yeah, I just kind of, I like to... I like to hear people's stories and for people to share that questioning process that might lead to a moment of what you described, a kind of a, a moment of clarity. Is it God or the weed? I mean, love it. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and then God sort of speaks for your, through your brother as well, I suppose, in that moment. But it's like, I think it's really valuable for people who are coming to this podcast who are at all different stages in that questioning process, you know, to, to be validated and like, yeah, these questions are actually they're little taps on the shoulder that are kind of saying, here's something to look at, you know, and here is something to be addressed, regardless of how you might then choose to address it. Totally. Yeah. I love that framing of it. And I, and of course we're all like super curious before we actually get sober. And I think, you know, I think it's very common for basically everybody who drinks like a good amount of alcohol at, at any point in their lives, you know, college or later, whenever to ask like, Oh, am I an alcoholic? Do I have a problem with this? Like, that's a very common thing to be doing. Now we have a, a lot of awareness about alcoholism in this society. Of course, you're going to ask that question. What I've realized mm. for myself is that normal drinkers are not 
asking the question, am I an alcoholic all the time? And yeah, like, it's just like, at some point that hit me, I was like, oh, and straight people aren't constantly asking themselves if they're gay or not. Like they are just not right. even thinking about it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So if the questions are there, that's what I mean. If the question's there, there's something going on. There may not be a straight and narrow black and white answer to what that something is, but there's definitely something for you to be investigating. It is very interesting. I've shared this on podcasts before, but like people will ask me how I came up with the term sober curious. And I actually thought about, and I was kind of questioning like, what other area of life are we allowed for this kind of exploration? And is it kind of accepted that actually there may be more of a spectrum? And I thought about sexuality and that kind of antiquated term by curious, which people don't really use anymore. But this, that was actually the inspiration for the term sober curious, actually. That makes sense. Just a little extra tidbit. Yeah. <laughs> so interestingly, it is actually, it was Quitlet before Quitlet was a genre mm. that kind of was a real turning point for you in terms of your drinking. It sounds like with, with this book, Drinking a Love Story, it was probably one of the, maybe one of the first Quitlet books. Um, it was, I'm sure one of the first, like extremely popular ones in the last, yeah. you know, 40 yeah. years or, um, and also like, I just had a weird amount in common with this woman. She had lived in the same area of Boston where I had been living. She was also a writer, you know, it just felt, mm-hmm. and it's also just beautifully written. Like even the title drinking a love story. It's like, that's how I felt when I gave up alcohol. And when I gave up cigarettes, even more and vaping is like, Oh, you're my best friend. You're my lover. You're my God. This is everything. I can't say goodbye to you. (laughs) Stevie has that moment as well. When she, when she relapses and kind of finally quits in the book, I'm really curious then. So you, you, you already mentioned you've written two novels before. What made you want to tackle the subject of getting clean in fiction, in a fiction format? Uh, You know, I don't even know that I set out to write this book like this. The initial seed for this book was I thought it would be so funny to have a decluttering guru who's a total mess. Because I think a lot of self-help gurus are total messes. And yet they're like walking around telling other people what to do. I find that very fascinating. And and then, I, I, I mean... And then I thought, well, I should set it in my hometown. I haven't used my hometown. I've done like a a New York book and a Hawaii book, both places where I've lived. And I think it was setting it in my hometown that took me mentally back to high school because I haven't lived there since high school. Mm. That, and, And I think that's why, you know, the central mystery of the book is, uh, um, about something that happened in high school. Cause I like mentally was back at that age. Uh, I think that's why it ended up being about um, her sexuality and, and her drinking. And I don't know, I feel like uh, for many novelists, their first book is when they use all the personal stuff. And for, for whatever reason, for me, it was the third. Right. Right. Yeah. It's funny, actually, when I was confirming with your publicist, I kept writing, is Stevie free? When is Stevie free? She was like, no, you've been swan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that makes sense that, yeah, choosing the setting would sort of transport you there and sort of find you re-embodying in your, as your creative self, like experiences that you'd had there. I'm one, I, I guess, like, do you think about your book as a part of the quitlet canon? Because I had, there aren't, there aren't many well, I don't know. I haven't come across any other, a lot of Quitlet is Quitlet speaking of gurus is presented as sort of self-help and there are memoirs, of course, but I haven't come across novels in the genre. And I'm wondering how you feel, how you'd feel about it being presented as a, as a Quitlet book. You know, that's so interesting. I, what I've learned at this point is uh, the marketing stuff is not up to me. I mean, I can say, uh, like my first two books were labeled psychological thrillers. And I was like, Oh really? Okay. I guess like, whatever <laughs> sells books, you can do whatever you want. Like, I just feel like after I write something, it no longer belongs to me in any way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And my intention with this book is, you know, it's not to help somebody get sober. It's to be entertaining. Like if somebody yeah. reads it and they're like, Oh, and it helps them realize something about themselves. And that makes me so happy. But I think going in with that intention is, dangerous you know like my Mm. my intention is just to be honest Mm. and entertaining and it is very entertaining very and I mean yeah I I love I loved reading 
the same kind of I loved reading about something that I've read in other quick lit memoirs, but in a fictionalized entertainment kind of forum. There's something that just felt sort of lighter, less preachy is not quite the right word, but it's just more engaging. And it, there's a there's a lot of laughs along the way and a lot of affection for the characters that you develop along the way. And of course, there are parts of myself and my own you know, drinking and thinking around drinking that I saw in it also. And I think this is why it's interesting. Like I, I write nonfiction, but I never read nonfiction. I've only ever read novels and only ever read fiction. And in fact, I talk in Sober Curious about how I think that actually reading was my first kind of almost addictive escape. Because as soon as I discovered, learned how to read when I was like five years old, I always had my head in a book. And yeah, looking back, I can reflect that it was a way for me to not really be present for a lot of the dysfunction that was happening in my household. You're nodding along. Is that something you can relate to? Oh, for sure. I mean, I was a master <laughs> of escape since the time I was very young. I would say even before reading, it was daydreaming. Like even now, oh, I'm yeah. sitting somewhere and I am like not there at all. I am fully somewhere yeah. else, like making up a whole world, you know, and like there's a good side to this. like. And there are, you know, a lot of good qualities that addicts have. Like we tend to be pretty crafty. We're like real go-getters. Like the same energy that I use to get like as wasted as possible is this, is the energy that I use to like write a book as like, you know, uh, most intensely as possible. Um, <laughs> and the fantasy stuff, it's like my job is to make up stories. So there's a good side to that. But in the extreme, it doesn't work. Yes, exactly. And I think there is a fine line between the kind of creative piece of going into your imagination and conjuring worlds and the escapist piece. And I suppose as with any substance or behavior, it's about looking what's the motivating, what's the motivating kind of factor in this? You know, why, why am I doing this? What am I actually trying to, where am I trying to get to and why, why is that, why am I not wanting to be with myself right now? Mm. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Of course. Okay. Something that I'm thinking a lot about right now in terms of addiction is how my addictions, I've never stopped being an addict. Like you just said, you switched to like an eating disorder and, um, uh, mm. right. Like weed. I mean, I was smoking weed every day. It's part of the relationship that I was kind of in at the time. It was, yeah. Right. So I'm just, um, thinking like at this point in my, okay. So I've been sober for 11 years. I don't do drugs anymore. I don't do alcohol anymore. I just quit smoking and vaping, which is like my last big thing. Um, I then like went on a little tear with gum. I've since had to kick that out because I abused the gum. I mean, I abuse everything so profusely that I just have to cut it out of my life. And people say to me, and this is kind of in the book, like, Oh my God, you're so strict. Like it must be hell being you, you're living in a prison. And I'm kind of like, no, this is my freedom is these restrictions because I can't eat one slice of pie. I'm literally eating three pies. Like I, and I mean, I almost mean that literally, like it's so, mm. and so right now where I am is, um, uh, I'm just, I feel like my addiction, it, whatever I'm addicted to has just gotten like more and more benign right now. For example, in the last two weeks, I've noticed that I've become kind of addicty with the with popped lotus seeds. <laughs> I don't even know what they are. They sound extremely healthy though. It's extremely healthy. <laughs> Loads of fiber, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. And I drown them in olive oil, which makes them a little less healthy. And I mean, like they're taking a bath in olive oil and I've started eating like four or five packs of these a night. And I'm just like, is this going to be the rest of my life? Do you feel this way? Mm. This is the, my question. Like, how do you feel about this? No, I've never had, I've never experienced that. I mean, alcohol was literally the only thing. Well, no, I said that I had an eating disorder and I was in this kind of relationship where I was smoking weed every day. And I, I mentioned that it was part of this relationship. It was just kind of like, it was almost like put in my hand and it was just something I was expected to do. And it was just, and by the time I'd smoked half a joint, I was like no longer able to be in control of my own actions or have any boundaries or anything. It was a really bad scene and a bad time in my life. And I came, it was alcohol that sprung me out of that relationship and what made me came, come alive and what gave me confidence, the confidence to say no and the kind of confidence to move forward in my life. But I think what's really interesting is that I've never, I'm the kind of person who will buy a bar of chocolate and it'll sit in a cupboard and I'll have like one square a night or forget about it. With smoking, I, I used to smoke when I drank, but then when I quit drinking, I had no desire to smoke. So that just kind of went away. Like I definitely can be a little bit, 
obsessive in my routines and my perfectionism. Um, but it's like none of my addictions have ever got quote unquote bad enough that it's become a serious problem. Even with the drinking, like I never drank every night. I never drank in the day. Didn't drink nearly as much as any of my friends. It was just the obsessive thinking about drinking that kind of really drove me to, okay, I do actually need to address this, which is why for me, it was so hard when I went to a couple of AA meetings and I was like, I don't know if this is me. And I would be told you're in denial, you're in denial. But I really didn't feel like there was that compulsive, I'm going to do as much of this as, as I can in the window that I've got to do it in. Mm-hmm. I've never really had that. So I don't know. I don't have an answer around like this whole concept of like an addictive personality. My husband, on the other hand, if chocolate is in the house, it's not going to be in the house by the end of the night. Do you know what I mean? Like he's currently almost a bit addicted to water. He's like, <laughs> got on this real water jag and he's I'm constantly hearing this like... <laughs> which is him drinking water out this sippy cup. And I'm like, he's at the water again. Oh my God. I feel like exercise. If he doesn't exercise for an hour and a half every day, he's in the worst mood. So for for him, I can see, and I can see that, oh, there's a clear difference in the way that we, that our bodies respond almost chemically to a substance or a behavior or whatever it is, a soothing mechanism, whatever that becomes. So I don't, I don't know. I, all of which has led me to believe that to believe very strongly in a spectrum when it comes to addiction. And I, and so I I don't really believe that, Oh, if you, you know, if you've had questions about drinking, but you're not in a program and you're not hundred percent sober, then you're in denial. I don't re I can't, I find it hard to, to get on board with that kind of all or nothing thinking because that hasn't necessarily been my experience. Like even now I can have a glass of wine and maybe this is like once a year I'll have the urge or I'll be like, Oh yeah. And then, have no desire to even really finish it like I just so yeah I don't know if that answers your question but it's it's I find it very interesting that some people have a really really strong compulsion develop quick quick strong compulsions around certain behaviors totally yeah and I think a lot of people even who are in 12-step programs don't relate to my level of intensity with staff. Like they seem to be able to have a cigarette every once in a while. And I'm like, I don't understand you at all. <laughs> like my brain does not work that way. And I'm just not, I, I'm get addicted to everything, like in the most intense way. But I do think yeah. like, you know, nowadays we're thinking a lot about health, health and you know, you just quit drinking because it's not healthy for you or for a variety of reasons. You don't have to be in a 12 step program. I think there are a lot of ways to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. I've definitely noticed, um, and I'm having someone on to talk about shopping addiction. I think the way that we are marketed products now with social media and online shopping and email shop, you know, mailing lists, as soon as you like click on, I've definitely noticed my um, addictive thinking around shopping. And I think that is definitely very, yeah, that's, that's the kind of thing that I'm working on at the moment. But again, it's not like it's taken me to the desk. I'm curious, like, why? What, what conclusions have you come to about why, for for you, it's always so intense and so extreme? Um, I'm just a really intense person, you know. Uh, mm. it, but I mean, how helpful it is is it for me to say that? Like, how helpful is it for me to devote myself to one idea about quote unquote, how I am, like, what does that even really mean? And how much room for change am I I leaving? Something that I've started wondering recently is, um, (laughs) I actually just wrote this down. I've been thinking a lot recently about amnesia. Like what if I woke up and I had no recollection of being an addict, would I still eat four to five bags of pop lotus seeds that night? Like how helpful is this addiction narrative to me, is it to some degree a self-fulfilling prophecy? I could make an argument though, that it's like, I also have this story because this is consistently how I have been with basically anything, any substance that is even remotely pleasurable from the time I was from the, you know, I have a memory. Mm. It's like, Mm. like I have always found some way to escape, whether it was like fantasy, food, shopping, other people, just whatever, like all, all. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. There's probably something in your astrology chart since you mentioned the Saturn return. I was about to say Saturn return. As soon as you said 28, (laughs) you might want to listen. There's an episode on the astrology of addiction that might, um, might resonate. 
I'm just remembering one because I, I I remembered it when you were first you first mentioned this whole idea about kind of self help gurus possibly being pretty messed up themselves. <laughs> I can relate to that. Like the things that I've written about are things that I've needed to kind of needed for myself in a way, you know. But there's a quote that I just love from your book. It's like this is not going to be verbatim, but it's like the most profoundly lost people are always looking for signs. And it made me think about this whole kind of resurgence, actually, and interest in the mystical and kind of esoteric spirituality and angel numbers and astrology and things that I've been deeply, deeply into and have written about and, and all sorts myself. But I do think we're, a, I don't know, it just makes me, the fact that we're, we're sort of all looking for these um, signs. Oh, wait, hold on one second. It says that the meeting's going to, can you see that? I'm it left. says the meeting, how weird. It should be up, it should give me an hour if there's only two of us on here. Well, let me finish this and then we might have to log off and kind of log back in. But um, it, it just sort of made me think actually reading that quote and mapping that against this culture where everyone is kind of looking for a sign, whether it's in an Instagram post that speaks to them, whether it's God appearing from behind a cloud, whether it's something in their astrology chart about what how lost we are at this moment in our culture actually. And I think one reason the conversation around addiction is so um, prevalent currently is because people really are like looking for answers and, and looking for things to help us make sense of the world, help us make sense of ourselves, you know, which is, I don't know, it's just kind of interesting, I think. But let's let's talk a little bit about, um, a bit more about the, the themes of the book. Um, so Stevie is a professional organizer and I would say something of a perfectionist in the way that she presents herself and the way that she has her morning routine down and everything is very neat and controlled. And I remember for me, a huge kind of aha moment in addressing my own drinking was when I learned that many people with substance abuse and issues and particularly alcohol abuse issues do identify as perfectionists, which goes very counter, I think, to the way that alcoholics in particular are portrayed in the media. We think of alcoholics and addicts as being out of control, but actually these are some of the most controlling people around. And I would put myself in that category as well. Can you kind of explain a little bit about the correlation as you see it between issues with addiction, alcohol in particular, and perfectionism and control? Totally. I mean, um, yeah, addiction is a control issue. You're trying to control how you feel all the time. You're trying to control the world around you, the world that alcohol creates. Um, uh, and so, yes, exactly what you just said. Uh, every, you know, many people who are addicts and alcoholics are not like living on the street, drinking out of beer, out of a brown paper bag. It doesn't look like that at all. Um, a lot of people are high functioning as I was and their outside lives look pretty good, you know, um, like, I was Stevie with that schedule, that super regimented schedule. I still am like this. And when I was drinking, my drinking was just part of that schedule. Mm -hmm. um, it was really also a way to release my, you know, the stress of how rigid I was. It was like the reward. I guess I just felt like my life is a list of tasks. I mean, this is something I'm still dealing with, if I'm honest. Um, mm -hmm. Like how am I just going to get through the day and like tick all these boxes and you know, that, that is perfectionism right there. And, uh, yeah. it's like, where's the joy in that? Well, for me, the joy was drinking and it's, I'm still trying to figure out how to have fun. This is a huge question for me. After I got sober, I was like, what's fun. I don't even understand what fun is. And then for a while, fun was just like eating cookies. I mean, and then it got great. And then it was out of control, but like, that's what I equate with fun is like, um, enjoying something, but then suddenly I'm destroying myself again. <laughs> I'm pausing us here to tell you about my in-person Sober Curious Summer Retreat. This is the first live Sober Curious event that I've hosted in over two years, and it's taking place over the weekend of July 15th to 17th, 2022, at the Omega Institute in upstate New York. The Sober Curious movement began as an event series back in 2016, and something very special happens when we're able to gather in person and get curious about why we drink the way we do. It's like it unlocks another level of awareness and understanding. 
Over the course of this retreat, I will be leading a series of highly interactive and highly fun workshops with live coaching sprinkled throughout to help you unpack everything you need to know about you and booze in order to create a sustainable shift in your drinking going forwards. In addition, I've also invited my dear friend and longtime collaborator, Luke Simon, to lead us in a very special Saturday night breathwork session. Breathwork is a powerful tool for moving stuck emotions up and out of the body. And Luke and I will be creating a safe and supportive setting for you to just let go of some of the old stories and beliefs that are behind unhealthy drinking habits that you are ready to see the back of. All are welcome, wherever you're at on your sober or sober curious journey. Although please note this is not a rehab experience or a replacement for any addiction recovery program you might be participating in. Think of it more as an opportunity to get a bit more serious about being sober curious, to perhaps give yourself some accountability and not least to connect with other people who are also on this path. Registration is open now and you can search for all the details at the Omega website, which is eomega.org. That's E-O-M-E-G-A.org. I'll include a direct link in the episode show notes. There are also multiple pricing tiers starting at around 2.35 for tuition. You can check out the website or contact Omega directly for all the options. In the meantime, if you have any questions, feel free to DM me on Instagram or fill in the contact form on my website at rubywarrington.com. I know this is going to be a super special weekend and I really hope to see some of you there. Now back to the episode. Yeah, right. I feel you so badly on that, but where is the fun? You know, I have found, I have found kind of pockets of fun in terms of like sober dance parties or even like sober breathwork sessions where I get totally tripped out, but it's almost like I'm still getting into an altered state, you know, in order to have fun because the rigidity of the to-do lists and the daily chores, which so many people I think will relate to just feels so unrelenting at times, you know, particularly in this very tech heavy world where not only are we supposed to like have all of our work chores done, but we're supposed to maintain this kind of like online persona, many of us, that is also kind of perfectly curated and kept up to date. And it's just, it's just never ending, but I can also, yeah, relate to that, that weird paradox of like alcohol being something I used to control, certainly how people saw me, um, how I presented my, had presented in the world, the kind of parts of my persona that I showed to people. Um, but then at the same time, it being the only way I could actually let go of control, lose control. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So decluttering also feels like a kind of really obvious metaphor for the 12 step concept okay, right. people might have heard of about cleaning house or kind of keeping your side of the street clean. I mean, you, you're laughing, but like, was it, is that not, is that not the case? Um, I actually hadn't made that correlation. Um, I was just using it. I mean, it's another form of control. Like I'm yeah. going to control my outside space. And it's also, um, about, you know, the facade that Stevie's presenting. Like I started this talk by saying I was two people and that was very much the case. And, um, you know, my outside space looked really good and, and I was a minimalist. I was kind of using minimalism as like a cover. I remember a friend came over one time and she was like, your space suggests that you have like such a clean internal life. And, uh, that was such a lie, you know, but I think for me, it was also aspirational. Like I wanted, I wanted my insides to reflect the outsides of my environment, which is kind of what Marie Kondo is talking about in her book. Like you have to like create a a Zen clutter free space before you can figure out anything about yourself. Yeah, I I definitely, I I like a a tidy house too. On this concept of cleaning house though, since I've mentioned it and even the, I, I just love the idea of keep your side of the street clean, which is something that pops up in the 12 step programs, but it's something that kind of transcends into other sort of spiritual and self-help places too. I'm wondering what those, what those concepts mean to you, like on a daily basis, what's your kind of cleaning? What's, how do you keep your side of the street clean? Oh yeah. Okay. Well, let me say something general about, about a 12 step programs, which I didn't really know what to expect when I went into AA. Like I really just kind of Googled it. It's amazing to me that I did that. And Um, I did not expect that it would be, um, you know, it turns out to be not so much about drinking. That's just like one tiny part of it. It turns out to give you this whole, uh, framework 
um, for thinking about your life that I found immensely helpful. Um, like, you know, the 11th step is all about prayer and meditation. And to think that these dudes added that in like the 1920s is so crazy and amazing. Um, and yeah, the stuff about, you know, keeping my side of the street clean, what does that mean to me? Um, I'll say one huge epiphany for me in my first year of AA was um, that self-seeking is selfishness. You know, I always thought, well, I'm getting drunk and I'm having these super deep thoughts about myself and I'm being kind of philosophical and surely this is important. And then I just realized like, oh, it's just like a well of self-obsession. You know, like you have to have some self-awareness, but you don't have to stay there forever. Um, So like an acknowledgement of other people and helping other people and keeping my side of the street clean, no matter what other people are doing, you know, Um, to me, being in AA is about being a better person in the world. Like that's what it's taught me to be. Um, And I, um, I, I worry that it sounds like cheesy when I say that, but I really mean it in the deepest way. Like every time I get up to share on my, a a birthday, I just start crying because I'm like, I did not expect this to happen. Um, And I'm not saying this as like a total zealot. I think there are plenty of problems with 12 strep groups too, but just this idea of like keeping um, my side of the street clean, which I guess for people who don't know what we're talking about, what that means is that um, no matter what other people say or do to me, I am going to behave like a good person. Um, like I'm not going to be reactive because I don't want to have to make an amends to people later for something that I did. Um, Hmm. as an alcoholic, I'm such a sensitive person that I can't really afford to be a dick. That's what Hmm. I want. It's like when I'm not a good person in the world, I carry that heavily. Like, it's not like, Oh, I'm okay with that. I carry it really heavily. Um, Hmm. so I can't, I just can't afford to do that. Yeah. I feel the same. I was reading, I don't know how you feel about Glenn and Doyle's work, but I just dipped into Untamed finally after, after kind of a year of not, of not for whatever reason. But um, yeah, she talks a lot about integrity, obviously. And like, you know, I can't actually live in the world if my insides do not match my outsides. And this kind of comes back to this whole idea of, you know, the external, external environment reflecting our internal environment or not. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I feel, I feel that very strongly as well. Like the more the the cleaner my system is, the more I'm present in my body. I feel those glitches in integrity, like they're fucking nails digging in me. You know, it's like, I can't walk around knowing that there's something that hasn't been said that needs to be said, or that something has been misconstrued, or that I'm thinking something about someone and holding it from them. Like I need to, I need to find a way to get right with that, which may or not be not, may or may not be having that conversation. But if I don't get right with it, then that need that that nail is just going to be like needling me the whole time and it's um, it becomes unbearable so yeah yeah it's really about just getting honest you know yeah. and not that, which is the opposite of denial exactly exactly so before i stopped drinking i was not only in drinking about uh, in denial about my drinking and you know before that my sexuality but also like really everything i was like this doesn't bother me i'm fine i'm a robot like i'm good and mm. Really, I was not at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it is for me, like I described it as almost a physical feeling. You know, I think it's easy to, I don't know, it can be, it can be challenging to even be aware of like, am I being really honest right now? <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. For me, if I really feel into it, I can kind of feel it. I don't know how you, how you feel about that, how you kind of like determine, am I really being honest right now? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's whatever I'm falling asleep thinking about, like, you know, there's a, the 10th step is about taking inventory at the end of the day, which I think is a really nice practice, whether you're in a 12 step thing or not, like just to be like, okay, what did I do well today? What did I not do well today? What do I, do I need to apologize to anyone? Just kind of going through it Mm -hmm. is something that I have, um, you know, that I do every night. Mm, mm, mm. which is the the kind of like yeah the the inner decluttering process you could say right (laughs) so in the book we meet lots of different clients and I really love meeting all the different decluttering clients and watching them go through their process of like what they're going to get rid of Mm -hmm. and almost to a 
to a character, the things that are hardest to get rid of are the things that they feel very nostalgic about and that have this sort of emotional hook in them. And again, I feel like this is a really beautiful metaphor for like the, the things, whether it's the memories, the experiences, the resentments, the relationships that have got that kind of nostalgic pull on us. And I wondered if you have any, I don't know, just any thoughts on, I guess the difference between like really letting those things go so that we can be freer and lighter and move forward into our future, become who we are. And the difference between that and just sort of like slipping it under the carpet, like with physical things, obviously we can physically remove them from our house Mm. with thoughts, memories, experiences, situations, it's much harder. And so, yeah, what are your, what are your kind of processes for actually really letting stuff go that you can, you're able to identify as, is holding you down, holding you back, keeping you stuck somehow. Um, you mean like internal thoughts and yeah. Um, I mean, what I think is that my psyche is smarter than I am. My subconscious is smarter than I am. So I don't really worry about being like, Oh my God, what do I, you know, oh, what am I not seeing? Although that is a question that I ask a lot because I just think it's funny, but I just, um, I know that whatever I'm supposed to be dealing with is going to become apparent to me whenever I'm supposed to deal with it. Whenever my psyche is like, okay, we have enough space now to deal with this. Uh, mm. so I kind of just wait for that to happen. And, and when, you know, the next thing comes along, I just try to deal with it in the best way I know how. And I think the only way that it, the only reason it crops us crops up is because it's something that I'm like wanting to let go of. Otherwise I might never notice it anyway. Um, I'm trying to think of a specific example for this. Did you have something specific in mind when you asked me this question? Um, I don't know. We might have a um, let's use something from the book, you know, Stevie, something happens to her in high school. She kind of thinks it's it's happened a certain way. And she's kind of quietly obsessed with that situation. You know, there needs to be a resolution. In the end, in the book, um, it all kind of comes to light, thanks to other people in her life kind of doing the right thing and like sharing the truth. But if that had never happened, for example, that situation happened, that awful thing, that humiliating, shameful thing, how does she live with it? How does she let it go and move on? Right. Yeah. I mean, now that you framed it that way, I have sort of a different response, which is like, I think a lot of uh, the same things work for many different problems. And those things are connection, which is the opposite of addiction Mm -hmm. uh, and self love, you know, just being like, okay, like it's okay. I mean, I just read this book, which I highly recommend to people, which is called 4,000 weeks. That's how many weeks we have to live until if we turn 80, like it's a pretty finite amount of time. And I'm sure actually it's like nothing. Yeah. (laughs) But like I have, I keep being like, okay, I have like 2000 weeks left. Um, maybe I could just infuse this with some kindness. Like, am I going to spend the rest of my time here feeling bad about whatever happened? Maybe not, you know, um, so having some perspective on it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, self-love comes from all kinds of things, namely surrounding yourself with people that actually kind of remind you that you're a good person too. <laughs> Getting rid of maybe those toxic relationships, which are are reflecting something back at you. Yeah. Something else back at you. Yes. That is like one of the best things that's happened, which has taken a long time to happen. You know, when you're outside people and circumstances start reflecting your higher self-esteem. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Which it is again, a reflection of your kind of outsides starting to catch up with inner work. I don't know. It's kind of a symbiotic experience, isn't it? (laughs) So Stevie also kind of relapses, although she's not officially sober, but the first time she, she picks up a drink again is on a date. And I do think, and this is again, something that comes up. So I've been with my husband for like 23 years. We did a lot of drinking together. We quit drinking together and it's, it's great. It's been great. (laughs) All of it actually. Um, 
but I do. So I, I don't have kind of personal experience of like getting sober or quitting drinking whilst actively dating. And so I'm always wanting to get advice, insights on that side of life from people who do. And again, I don't actually know about your own personal kind of like relationship history, but it's something that Stevie experiences. And it's tied in very much with her confusion around her sexuality as well. But it was it was interesting to me that the, the experience that triggers her picking up a drink again is being on a date. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, this is not my experience. I have not relapsed. Mm-hmm. My uh, experience of like early days sobriety. So there's this suggestion that was made to me. That's made to a lot of 12 steppers in AA, which is like, um, maybe don't get into a relationship for the first year. Cause it's kind of a rocky time where you're just figuring out who you are without alcohol. Um, it's sort of a fragile time. And so I took that advice. I was like, fine, I'm not dating. I'm getting unlimited massages. And I mean, talking about addiction, I went to super magic fingers on, I think it's like 84th street. I mean, like multiple times a week. Like I was there all the time and I was trying to quit smoking then. So I was doing the nicotine patch and this is like a dingy type of place. And I remember taking it off and like putting it on the wall and forgetting it. And like a couple weeks later coming back and it was still on the wall. Um, anyway, I digress, but I I just thought, Oh, it's going to be easier to not date. I I just felt like this is already, this is just going to be easier for me if I just take this, um, out of the equation. I also stopped going to bars. I stopped hanging out with my heavily drinking friends. I was just like, why would I want to do that? I stopped going out to dinner with my um, stepdad who's like really into wine. I was like, sorry, we can only do brunch now. Like I just like got out of the whole scene um, because I had felt before then that a date was an interview with cocktails, you know, like dates are awkward. Um, when you get there, I mean, especially when you meet somebody on an app, you're like, oh, they might be great. Then you see them, you kind of know what's going to, you know, if you like them or not within like 45 seconds, often it's a no, then you have to sit there anyway. It's just easier with a, an alcoholic beverage. Yes. Yes. Undoubtedly. So this is a, this is the issue that many people come up against, you know, how do I do this? And I think you shared a couple of things there, even from a kind of non-dating perspective. Like I will often, people go, oh, my social life's going to completely change. And I'm like, embrace it like meet people in the day meet people one-to-one don't maybe don't hang out with like your heavier drinking friends and I guess potentially the same sort of thing could be applied to dating daytime dates rather than nighttime dates although that wouldn't necessarily be a deterrent to drinking for some people but I mean flash forward to now I do coffee dates with people or my real genius thing is I do a walk in a loop with people cuz that's 45 minutes long it has a natural end you have exercised and then you can say goodbye and that's it. I also yes, well planned. Yeah, <laughs> two birds one stone. Um I also find that like you know I just from the outset say like, I don't drink or, or I think like it's an option to, to on a lot of these dating apps yeah, yeah. say whether or not you drink and me saying, I don't drink naturally attracts the people who don't drink. Like, I don't yeah. even want heavy drinkers. I'm not interested in dating a heavy drinker. So, uh, for that to kind of be out of the way in the beginning is great. Yeah. I think, I think that's a, a newish again. I'm so, I haven't even been into the world of app dating, but I do believe that's a new thing that people are doing. <laughs> I just want to, just to finish up, I'd love to hear a bit about your writing process and this, this concept that we touched on earlier of writing and creativity, almost being like a kind of a healthy escape, because I do think that in all humans, there is a desire and a need actually to escape the mundane, to sort of travel beyond this sort of three-dimensional reality thing that we call reality and to go to other places that feel more magical or expansive or surprising and unexpected. And our imagination can take us there. I also know for myself that writing is such a powerful way for me to make sense of things that have happened in my life, make sense of the way that I feel about things. I wonder if, um, yeah, if you have any thoughts on that writing as a writing and reading as a sort of a healthy escape, this desire to escape actually coming from a, a place of, of sort of well being sometimes. And, um, also 
writing as a a way to sort of process your experiences? Yeah, I also write to figure out what I think. Um, like you, and I think, you know, many writers, I feel like Joan Didion said that too. Like a lot of people, a lot of writers think that, um, even if you're not a writer, you know, quote unquote, like, even if you're not like writing a book or, you you know, your goals aren't about being published, writing is therapeutic. You know, uh, I, I recently did the artist way. I think the morning pages is a great idea. Like, so just writing a little bit in the morning, um, you know, she says three pages, but just like whatever you can do is like a helpful meditative, um, thing. I want to say something else for people who are creative. Cause I think this happens a lot. Um, they, you know, w- when you're stoned or you're drunk or you're on drugs, you are no longer self-conscious. And for a lot of people, that is the safest time to create. And for many, when they take out the drugs and the alcohol, it becomes daunting to then create something. It's like, well, what am I going to make without this? And this in the beginning for me was for like a second, it was scary because I was in grad school. I was getting my MFA in creative writing. I had only written everything that I presented in school while drinking. I mean, for years, I was just like sitting there with wine and writing. Like I was never sober when I was writing. It just turned off the mean voice in my head. So then I was like, oh crap, now I'm halfway through grad school and I have to keep writing and I'm not going to have this friend. And I just thought, you know, I'm just going to do it. I can't afford to have this problem. Like (laughs) I'm not going to make this an issue. I'm just going to keep going. And it turns out, you know, that the alcohol wasn't making my work. I was making my work. Like all of that stuff that I was making was, came from me, was within me that the alcohol really just made it sloppier. It actually just made it worse. Um, the same thing happened with vaping and, and smoking. I was like, how am I ever going to write anything if I'm not chain vaping? And uh, I'm like, I'm, I'm like working. It's crazy. Amazing. It's interesting. You said something that I think, think it seemed to me to be really key. You said the alcohol turned off the mean voice in my head. So that inner critic, you mean, of like what you're writing is shit. No one cares what you have to say. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like everyone out there knows way more than you do. So what do you think you've got to say on this subject? I'm just giving you the script that repeats in my head while I'm writing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And alcohol, I guess, dials that down. But I did one thing I really noticed about your writing is how concise and well-paced and well-structured. It's flawless. Your pacing is flawless. And it felt to me like, how could you... You couldn't pull that off drunk because that takes, for me, getting that pacing. So it really feels like you're in a, and then, you know, you're really on that kind of string of pearls going through a story. And one thing is naturally kind of like leading you to the next. To me, that again is like a, it's a a physical sensation I feel in my body when I know the pacing is right. And so I've, I've, I couldn't imagine writing drunk because I wouldn't be able to feel how the piece is as a whole. I do feel it in my body anyway. I'll offer that to other writers out there as well. Yeah. You might think it's a help, but later you'll find it's a hindrance. It really is. Yeah. And I do wonder, and it goes to that mean, mean voice thing as well. I think it actually takes so much fucking courage to make stuff and put it into the public domain, whether it's writing, whether it's, you know, visual art, whether whatever it is, whether it's an Instagram post at this point, like it takes so much courage and I guess, yeah, alcohol gives us quote unquote um, courage as well. But yeah. But it's a fake courage. You know, exactly. Tara Brock calls a false refuge. Like you think it's a refuge, but it's not real. Like the real work is, you know, working through your fears and mm-hmm. just like, who cares? We only mm-hmm. have 4,000 weeks, so I'm going to do whatever I want. <laughs> exactly. And there's so much about self-acceptance within that. You spoke about self-love. I really think a lot about self-acceptance because there's lots of parts of myself that I don't love. Like there's a kind of selfish, deceptive, like sometimes mean part. I, I don't know if I can love her, but I can accept her as part of my whole humanity and just accept that everybody else has that part too. At least that's what I tell myself. <laughs> Everybody else is also secretly deceptive. I love that word. <laughs> deceptive. And again, you know, we've been talking about honesty and denial. When I say deceptive, there's a part of me that will um, 
present the facts in a certain way. Mm. You know, I know I can, yeah, I'm a, I'm a writer and I'm an editor even beyond that. Like I'm really good at presenting things in a certain way that tell the story that I believe is true mm-hmm. <laughs> or that I want people to believe is true. So I, I, that's the part of myself that I, I need to be aware of that part of myself. Actually, I don't need to drown that part of myself or my awareness of that part of myself out because otherwise I'm not going to be writing the truth. And I want to, I think that's why we, why we write as well, you know, to tell the truth. Great. It seems like that muscle is totally necessary. And it's another word for the deceptiveness that you're talking about is persuasiveness, you know, or that's maybe the flip side of it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Awesome. Well, I loved your book. Um, And I, for anybody who's kind of like interested in the Quitlet genre and is looking for inspiration, like reading, like I said, a fictionalized story of somebody getting clean actually was just so enjoyable and fun. Speaking of fun too. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much for reading and thanks again for having me. That was my conversation with Swan Huntley, whose new book is Getting Clean with Stevie Green. It's a highly enjoyable alternative take on the quitlet genre and you can find it wherever you buy your books. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and don't forget to leave a rating and a review to help more people find the series. The Sober Curious podcast features original music and is edited by Allo Audio. You can find them at aloeaudio.com.